0: Today we have a very special event at the monastery. These young children, they don't want to remain young children, they want to do all the things that adults do.
1: Hmm?
0: Just trouble, that's all there, trouble. Tell me, noble association is not everything. I dare you. Wholesome, good, association. It is everything. These very children, as you saw, they invited the Swami Nuhansi to the sermon today, and invited him to deliver the Dhamma. Today, they are also organizing their own Dakinaya program, because they have been impressed by what the adults have been doing, because wherever they see. They see adults doing these kind of things. So that is what they want to do. When you were younger, you'll remember you wanted to do what kids wanted to do? No. You had to do what kids wanted, kids were supposed to do, because that is what your parents wanted you to do, but what you wanted to do was what they did, because that's how children are. They want to they want to grow out of their, their own skins as soon as possible, <clears throat> and they want to do the big things. They want to do what adults do. So here, no matter where they look, they see Swaminandhas, they see Anagarikas and Anagarika Mahatmyas, and then the Shravakas and Shravikas and Ueshimaatmas and our devotees. All aspiring towards Nibbana, and thoughts, words, and actions, all geared towards Nibbana. So doing meritorious deeds, preaching the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma, meditation, all these things that they see happening around them, those are the things that they want to do. See, after all, it matters not whether you're young or old, it matters not what age you are. Causes lead to results, don't they? How old are you, by the way? See, when I ask you how old are you, you have to look at yourself first. Hmm? And then you have to give your age. But my question is, how old are you? I'm talking to your mind. How are you? How old are you? Yeah, just a newborn. You are newly born, just now. So, what age is it then? Exactly. Therefore, good and bad does not require an age. A chitta is born out of an indoctrination. Whatever drushti it holds, that is the course that a chitta takes. So it has no age. An age is not a characteristic of a chitta. An age is a characteristic of jati. Therefore jati ages, but chittas don't age. So these young children, although now you'll ask me then, who are young children, Swami? (laughs) Conventionally, they're young children. And actually, in in real terms, young children are, are chittas that don't have a lot of experience. That's what they are. They don't have a lot of information accessible to them. Because they had once, and now there was this natural thing called death that happened, and then after that, all their memory was gone. So this Chitta has to start again, acquiring new knowledge, new information, new experiences, and then from that point forward, the actions are determined by the by that information, and therefore the associations that they have. So this is why, here at our monastery, you see young children running around everywhere. I say running around, I mean, that's when they're good. <laughs> actually, they're very good, actually. so they want to do what adults want to do right now some of them are in the valley malua. as i left the kuti to come to the sermon quite a few of them are in the valley malua, walking pacing up and down the valley malua. they may have no recollection whatsoever they may have no idea whatsoever what they're actually doing in the valley Malur. but as they look around them there are Swami yesu who are sat, sat down in meditative pose there are the anagarika Mahatas who are walking up and down in the valley Malur. and these children what they want to do is that when they were, when you were younger, you saw your father leave for work at five o'clock in the morning with the suitcase in hand and with the, you know, suited and booted. And then when we were younger, that is what we wanted to do. We wanted to get in his shoes and go to work. And then we saw dad had a wife, right? So when we thought when we were, when we grow up, we also want to have a wife. That's the way, you know, we are, children are highly impressioned because they don't They don't have any other filters for working out what is right or wrong. Therefore, whatever their adults do, whatever their parents do, whatever the elders that are around them do, they take that as gospel truth. They take that as right. This is why what we strive to do here is to give the right kind of impressions, to make the right kind of impressions on these minds. That's when they really become noble hearts, when they are in the association of noble hearts and noble minds. So you need to try and do as much of this as possible at home because at home also your children are surrounded by noble ones, aren't they? Your neighbours, noble ones, right? And television and the internet and the newspapers Hmm? and the town folk, village folk, all noble ones. You live in noble land, right? I mean, you know, if I, if I today was just a child at home, I wouldn't have what we have here today. So, I, would, I remember what my childhood was like, some, some aspects of it. I remember who the neighbours that we had, good decent people, not bad people per se, but they didn't know what being noble was about. What they knew was how to live an average life live an average life and do average things and go on to become average people. And that is what they're doing today. They're average people, suffering like average people, right, having picked up the the indoctrinations that average people do, doing average things, indulging in sensuality. And when they get angry, they take it out on others. When they feel their ego surface, then they try and show that to others and sometimes they feel less than others, other times they feel more than others, and that's what average people do. I mean, someone who takes, eats an ice cream and they feel like they need ice cream is a very average person, don't you think so? Because that is not the answer. It's a very average answer. It doesn't, it doesn't lift you up to extraordinariness. That's the problem. So what we're trying to do here is, with all of us, Right? there are no children or adults, we're all chittas, newborn chittas. The Dhamma is our saviour. Dhammo haverakati Dhammachari. The Dhamma is our saviour. What we are trying to do is, every time we get here, every time we come here together, we are trying to be impressioned by the Dhamma. We want the Dhamma to have its influence on us. That is what we're here for. So, if that is what we're here for, then... Let that be, but before we begin, then, before I forget, <laughs> then, before I begin, let us take a moment to bring our palms together in veneration of the most noble man we've ever had we've ever seen, the earth, the world has ever seen. his nobleness knows no bounds, has no limits infinite nobility. Such nobleness is what we aspire to. As we bring our palms together in veneration of the supremely enlightened one, let us also remind ourselves of our purpose being here and make a solemn pledge to ourselves to take refuge in the Noble Triple Gem and work our way towards nobleness.
1: Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma Sambuddhasve Namo Thassa Bhagavato arahato Samma Sambuddhasve Namo Thassa Bhagavato Arhato Samma, I'm
0: still on the mend, so forgive the interruptions from time to time. But it's getting better. But you need this from time to time just to hasten you along the path to Nibbana. Every time the glass is half full for us. Even when Mara comes and knocks on our door and says, Ah, suffer now. And then we say, thank you, Mara. We are even thankful to the Mara. Mara reminds us. That's why there is nothing that can set us back. Dhammo havi rakati dhammachari. It is because of that. We always take refuge in the Dhamma. One who is righteous, one who lives by the Dhamma, is protected by the Dhamma. So who is this one who lives by the Dhamma? Chittas. That's it. Last week I asked you, I wrote the letter I on the board, remember? And I asked you, when you think about yourself, who do you think about? Hmm? If, if you, When you think about yourself, you're thinking about the person you see in the mirror, then that's wrong, that is not who you are. This is a false conception, this is a misconception rather. You need to come out of that. So, dhammo Rakati dhammachari. Who's the dhammachari? A chitta. chitta is dhammachari. So dhammachari is living by the dhamma. Righteously. We are not talking about beings, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking about individual chittas. Each chitta, if it lives by the dhamma, what is to live by the dhamma? It is to be contemplating on the dhamma. If you live, you can live by dhamma or you can live by adham. These are the two ways in which you can live. There are no other ways in which you can live. You want, a, you want an ice-cream, you eat an ice-cream. What is that? Living by the dhamma or living by the adhamma? Hmm? That is adhamma. Why is that? Is it bad to eat ice-cream? Is it a sin? No. Is it unrighteous? Well, it depends what you mean by righteousness. What it means is, it's that you're simply taking the wrong solution to a problem. That's it. So therefore, how are you going to get the right answer? Therefore, how are you going to be happy? How are you going to find fulfillment? When you have a sum to work on, someone says, Add, they write this on the board. You have to get the answer right to this question to score full marks. And if you do, then you qualify for something. You qualify for your next promotion. right? So you look at that. Now you can do this either through dhamma or adhamma. What do I mean by adhamma and dhamma? If the way in which you work this problem takes you closer to the answer, then that is dhamma. If it takes you further away from the answer, that is adhamma. So you look at this and you go, okay, five times three, that's fifteen. What have you done? You've multiplied the numbers. When? What has been asked of you to do is? just to add the numbers. But then you'll say, but multiplication is a much more advanced technique than addition. So surely I should be given credit for that. Uh, No. You don't just get credit for doing advanced stuff just because it's advanced, just because there are more steps to it doesn't mean you get credit for it. Because the ask of you is to add the two numbers, not to multiply. So just because you're doing something that is... More involved, more steps involved, more effort involved, more thinking involved than what is expected of you. That doesn't score you anything. How much? How many? How much do you think you'll get for this question? If this is the answer, hmm? zero. But you know the, origin, the the right answer is eight. I mean, come on, that's a lot more than eight. So surely you should get you, this is the eight and then some, right? Is it not? this is eight, and then seven more. So you've already got the eight there. Shouldn't they give you marks for that? Shouldn't they? So they should give you, okay, you've got eight, this is eight and seven, right? We'll, so if this was, uh, say, three marks for this question, they give you three, because you got the eight in there, and then you got seven in there, right? So they take out, maybe take another one out. And they give you, okay, three minus one, they give you two marks. Is that how it works? Hmm? would your teacher ever give you marks like that because the, the the 8 is in the in the 15 so therefore do they give you 3 <laughs> no it doesn't work like that there's only one right answer to this problem if you take the right approach then that is dhammo have dhammachari this is adhamma this is adhamma therefore you will not get closer to the solution to the solution to solving the problem, and to happiness. But many people who feel that they have lived for so many years of their life, they keep on taking the wrong steps, they keep on following the wrong steps, the wrong procedure, and therefore they keep ending at the wrong answer. Sometimes the same problem over and over again, but they end up at the wrong answer. And they expect to be happy, and they wonder what's going wrong with them. So when you think about yourself, if you are thinking about the image of the self or the, your image as you see, as you remember seeing it in, in the mirror, that is adhamma. Therefore, when something happens to this body of yours, who will suffer? Who will suffer? Sometimes the, bo- sometimes the body doesn't suffer so much. The mind suffers much more than that. Sometimes the body doesn't suffer so much. Say you have to do some exercise, the doctor's advice, right? They've said you've got to do some exercise, do some push-ups, do some sit-ups, 50 every day just to keep healthy, right? They say maybe you've got a little bit of uh, fat on your body, you have to do some exercise to keep yourself fit, 50 push-ups every day and another 50 sit-ups, right? Okay, so you think, right, I'm going to do this now and then you get started. How many do you manage before you ask yourself, do I have to? Must I? <laughs> hmm? Can we not make any concessions? Why fifty? Can't we do with thirty? These, you know, you begin to ask yourself these questions. Why do you ask yourself these questions? Because you start to feel the aches and pains in your body, right? As the as the uh, the acid uh, the lactic acid starts building up in your in your muscles, you start to feel the aches and sometimes the old bones. You know, they haven't been stretched in a long time you know what i'm talking about right yeah and then you you don't feel you don't feel like going for it you feel very reserved you don't you don't you don't like this experience because it's it's hurting you un very un, unfamiliar especially if you're not someone who works out a lot and then you start to feel the aches and pains in your body you know the funny thing is ladies and gentlemen none of these pains are where it is or at least none of these pains are where you think it is for instance when you if you pinched your your, your hand, like as, I, as I'm doing right now, you feel a pain, don't you? If you were to do this, you'll feel, you'll feel hurt. This pain is not actually here. It's not actually here. But you feel like the pain's here. That is because you don't understand, I mean you do, but generally speaking people don't understand that pain is a perception. This is a sparsha rupa. In fact, even this is not a sparsha rupa. The rupa is created in the mind. Because the rupa is a, is a communication between the brain and the, and the chitta, and the mind, or chitta. That is that communication between the brain and the mind. That is where a rupa takes place. There are no rupas here. These are just electrical impulses. Is that what an electrical signal feels like? That? Is that what an electrical signal feels like? Well, then that is what you must also feel if you put something on your tongue. It does, that's not what it feels like, right? Depending on which sense organ is stimulated, you perceive these external stimuli very differently, don't you? But you know that all of these are just electrical signals and they travel from the, your sense organs to your, to your brain and then from there on they are translated to Rupa either Rupa Rupa, Shabda Rupa, Gandha Rasa, Sparsha Rupa, sight, sound, smell, taste and touch, as you know them, and that is what you then perceive through the Chitta. People don't understand this stuff. You know, if you, because you know now today that the taste of cake is not in cake, you are beginning to lose the value that you have been placed that you have placed on cake all this time. It's beginning to happen for you. Today as you bite yourselves, you you take a slice of cake and you you start munching into it. And you experience the the taste of cake. Today you understand if you live in the Dhamma, in that moment, Dhammo have rakati Dhammachari, if in that moment you practice the Dhamma, you live by the Dhamma, you will contemplate on the fact that there is a perception of taste, but this perception is not in the cake. It cannot be in the cake. This is just a perception. Perceptions are not in objects. That's why two people will perceive two things or the same thing in different ways. For instance, if you're here with someone you know, right, if you've come here today with someone you know, you may look at that person and say, this is my husband. If you're here with two people that you know, ask the other person whether they also think of this person as your husband. No, of course not. There's only one person in this world, hopefully, that thinks that your husband is your husband. Yeah? Aren't you glad about that? There's only one person in this world who thinks that your wife is your wife. So, this wifeness, how can that be in her? In the same way that cake, the taste of cake is not in cake. The wifeness about your wife is not in your wife. It's only a perception. When it comes to cake, you're, you have a problem with that. You think, what, Swami, no you know, cake, taste is in cake. That's why I keep on eating cake and then I feel good when I eat cake. What if someone felt the same about your wife? I ask you. <laughs> you don't want that, do you? Nobody wants that. Because that's a very special relationship that you have. You only want your wife to feel that she's your wife and you only want you to feel that your wife is your wife. You don't want anyone else to feel that way even. Even if, someone, even if you have the slightest suspicion that someone's beginning to have feelings like that, what happens then? You start feeling jealous. Hmm? You start feeling protective of them. You, you start feeling offensive. Or, or rather offended. Right? Then you have a bone to pick with a person, person who might feel that way. And you might even go walk up, walk up and talk to them. Hey, excuse me, she's my wife. What do you think you're doing? Why are you holding her hand? Let go, let go. That's my wife. You don't say the same thing when you're eating a piece of cake and you go, hmm, that, that's a nice piece of cake, isn't it? And someone else goes, yeah, that's a nice piece of cake. It is, yes. <laughs> why, why, is it, why do you treat things differently? <laughs> think about it. When you eat a piece of cake and you you appreciate the the, the the taste of cake in that slice of cake, and someone else, if someone else says no, that actually doesn't feel like taste like cake at all. That tastes like brinjal. You're gonna go no. Try it again. Have have another slice. Try it again. Right? You'll encourage them to keep doing it until they agree with you. Yeah. Now just imagine if the same thing was to happen with your wife. Huh? You walk up to the room with (laughs) with your other half, and there are people in the room, audience, and you go, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you my wife. And everyone else goes, yeah, she's my wife. (laughs) What are you going to say? Come on, darling, let's get out of here. (laughs) This is not a good place for us. So it's okay to feel like that about cake, but it's not okay to feel like that about other things. But a perception is a perception. How can you lay down rules and boundaries on perceptions? You must be thankful that you know people are very careful about who they ascribe these these identities to. You must be grateful for that. But then, if someone, if you if you looked at this and said, "That's green." Right? And only half of the room agreed with you. Don't won't you say there's a problem? Won't you say there's a problem here? That right? you come up to the front of this this audience and you ask, What colour is this, ladies and gentlemen? It's green. You say that. Half of the room agrees with you, the other half say, No, it's not green, it's blue. Then you say, wait, there's a problem here. Right? I'm seeing this green. And there's half of this audience that thinks it's, it's, uh, it's blue. How is that so? There's a problem here. Either I'm there's a problem with my sight or there's a problem with your sight because we must all perceive green. See, those are also perceptions. In the same way that you feel your wife is your wife, these are also perceptions, ladies and gentlemen. You think of this as green because that is the result of a perception process that is informed by drishti. That is why you think this is green. It is informed by drishti. And you have given it that sanya, and you call it green. But in the same way, you are also informed through drishti about the relationships that you have in your families. But then you say, Those, the way that I perceive certain people in my life, nobody else should perceive them in that way. Who gives you the right to call those shots? How can you lay down those rules and boundaries? But people do, and if someone were to trespass those boundaries, then we get into all sorts of problems. That is because we don't don't accept these as mere perceptions. That's why I encourage you and invite you, when you think about I, when you think about yourself, do try to think about this thing that you call I as simply the five aggregates. Because then you're really acknowledging who you are, who you really are. If you're not thinking of yourself as a chitta, in that moment, ladies and gentlemen, you're you're living a different persona. See, this is reincarnation. Right now. Do you believe in reincarnation? Poonarbahu? Mothers in the house? Give me a show of hands if you are a mother. Anyhow? Mothers? Mothers. Good. Okay. When you think about your children, you go through this is. Not, I'm not talking about what happens after death. I'm talking about right now. As you think about your children, in fact, you're looking at a Panchaskanda. That's it. You look at a Panchaskanda, and because of your drishti and ignorance and attachment, you look at that Panchaskanda and you'd say, you think of that as your child. Even if your child is not here to be seen, as you think of them, in that moment, Punar Bhava happens. An incarnation takes place in the mind. See, this doesn't happen for a narahant, because for a narahant it's just khinang purana, nava nati sambhava. Chittas arise and pass away. You are just a chitta. Right? I'll draw a body around. Actually, what do you think? Is this the right way to draw it or is it something like this? The body? Which one's which one's the better representation? Top one or bottom one? Hmm? Bottom one? Why? Is it not the same body in which the chitta runs? Hmm? No? Are you not just one body in which the chitta runs? No? If it's a body, it can't be like that. <laughs> because a body is a collection. What is a body of water? A collection of water. Yeah? So if you are a body, a body is a collection. All of these are part of that collection. But if you take one, say, Kesa, hair, what is hair? It is also a collection. That is also a kaya. And loma, which are the hairs on your body, body hairs, they are also collections. Collections of the stuff that you put in through your mouths. We discussed the digestion process, right? How the food that you put into your mouth, it is digested and then it's ingested. And after it's ingested, meaning absorbed through your blood vessels into your body, then they are reconfigured to form what you are. And those, those elements, right, the food that you have put into your mouths and they have th- those elements, that, the configuration that in which they are now, they are held together by energy. That's why you have to constantly keep breathing. Because there are forces acting on your body, ladies and gentlemen, keeping the cells of your body together. There are forces acting on you keeping the cell walls together, keeping the nucleus together. Keeping the tissues together, all of these things have to be kept together, so therefore there has to be a constant supply of energy. Otherwise you wonder, don't you, why, why does the body always need to produce energy? Why must energy always be there? Can't you just create a body and then take, take energy out and bring it back when you need it? Your bodies have to constantly generate energy. And that energy is, is being generated from the food that you put into your mouths. Right? And that energy, and, and so this energy is constantly necessary to keep this mass together. The moment it stops generating that energy, the moment you stop supplying energy to your body, now the parts that make up your body begin to disintegrate. That is what you call death. See, if you could feed a dead man, yeah, if you could... In other words, feeding is merely actually... Pumping materials and energy—that's what feeding does. Through the mouth, you put in the constituent materials, the raw materials, and energy. As long as long as you can keep doing that, even to a dead body, you can stop the body from disintegrating. It'll it'll remain intact. But of course, the the processes have to take place: ingestion and absorption. Those things have to take place. But because they don't take place anymore after a person is dead. That body, those cells in the body, the elements in the body, they cannot be kept together. In fact, a body cannot be without a constant supply of energy. Any body, not any body, I mean a body. A body is a collection of stuff. So there can be a body of energy. It can be a body of matter. Or it can be a body of matter and energy. What are you? A body of matter and energy. And I'm not even talking about the chitta yet. Take the chitta out. Even these physical bodies are a collection of matter and energy. And that matter and energy is what you put in through your mouths. There's no other way matter and energy can come to you. This is the only source. So therefore, it would be wrong to say, or wrong to represent the body... Through a diagram like this, because there is no one unit that is called a body. a body is constantly causes coming together and being held together by the forces acting on it, so therefore you are bodying as we discussed a couple of weeks ago this this is this is one body, this is another body, this is another body, and so on, but they look the same now you know you don't you didn't age overnight, yeah. This aging that you see today, if you recall from your younger years, you remember seeing your photos when you were younger, or watching a video of when you were younger, maybe your 10th birthday party, if you remember that, and then you compare that to today, right? It is because of this, is it not, that this aging has happened? If it was one body, you know, right from when you were 10 to what you are now, then there would just be a, a, the same body that you were in when you were younger. But it's not. That is because in every moment, this is is matter, matter and energy. Matter and energy. Energy keeping matter together. And then it disperses. Once again, energy keeping matter together disperses. Energy keeping matter together and it disperses. This happens constantly. The tendency is to disperse. The tendency is always to disperse. The tendency of the universe is always to go into chaos. The universe itself takes no structure. The entire universe, it does not take a structure unless you give it energy. Energy puts things into order. Take out that energy, everything is in chaos. But chaos is not problematic. Chaos is just the way things are. But when we think about chaos, we think everything is just disturbed and everything is just all over the place, right? And there is no system, there is no order. That is the, the impression that we have when we think about chaos. But what I really mean by chaos is stuff just exists. That's it. There are no particular shapes or ways in which something needs to be. In fact, you know, what what makes you think that this fan should be this way? Why is this fan taking this shape? Because there's a chitta which produced this fan, and that agenda of this shape was initially a thought in that chitta, wasn't it? Right? There was a view in a chitta, there was an agenda in a chitta, and that agenda was acted out. And that is why you have it in this way. It takes this shape because there was a script that was played out. And that script was the script of the jitta. So therefore, if this handle were to come off, now you say it's gone into chaos. Who decides what is chaos? It's chaos to you because you have a certain impression as to how this needs to be. If you had no particular order in which you need something to be, like take the ocean for instance, ladies and gentlemen you know there's there's all the water in the ocean is it in is it taking any any particular shape or or structure water is just there it's not taking a particular shape, yes of course it's taking the shape of the of the ocean right so it's it's taking up the space that that is there that is the the earth right but it's not taking a particular shape because you don't need it to. Because you don't need it to, you don't say that the ocean is a particular shape. So it is just the way it is. That's it. The stars in the sky, for instance. Right? Now you look up at the sky and you say there are the zodiac signs, don't you? So you say Sagittarius and you say that's Aquarius, that's Capricorn and so on. You look at the star, stars in the sky and then you start seeing these shapes. Where are those shapes initially? Are they actually out there? Or are they shapes that you project out there? Hmm? Did you think when God put the stars in the sky, he, he laid them down in that particular order? So that there was Capricorn and Aquarius and Sagittarius? No. They're, those stars are just there in chaos. So you then project... A certain order, you project a certain agenda onto those stars, and now if any of those stars move out of place, now you say, that's going into chaos. Because it doesn't fit your structure. So therefore, the point I'm trying to make here is, it is always the mind that expects things to be in a certain order. Because if things weren't in a certain order, what is the purpose of the mind? The purpose of the mind is to recognize. To identify and to recognize. To perceive. To perceive what? Order. It is to perceive order. That is what you refer to as manifestations. Today you refer to them as manifestations. Before the Dhamma you refer to them as things, entities. This pen is an entity. Or at least that's what you thought. But today you understand that this is simply a manifestation, and you th- and what this really is, is just, you know, this is matter brought together and structured in a certain way, so therefore you don't call this chaos. But think about this for a second. Let's say, um, say there was a, a pile of sand, okay, and you were taking sand from this Mixing it up with uh, maybe some aggregate and with cement and you're trying to build something. You're trying to build a wall. Okay? So, to create the mixture, you'll take some water, you'll take some sand, you'll take some uh, aggregate and you'll start mixing them together. Yeah? Maybe you'll put into the cement mixer or maybe you might take the, uh, what do you call it, the, the spade, right? And, and start mixing it manually if you're, if you're doing it that way. Now this is the sand and this is uh, the uh, the the aggregate you have the cement you have water you mix all these things and you now have cement as you start taking some of the sand say you're using a spade to take sand from here and you start adding it here you'll say that this is becoming something, you're acting out your agenda on this, so there's a structure that's taking place here. What, what are the components of this structure? Cement, uh, aggregate, you have sand and water. Okay, But as you start taking materials from here and start collecting them here, materials are leaving another place, aren't they? As they're accumulating in one place they are reducing in another place. So you see, previously, this was also a structure. And so was this. So was the water. If you had, say, a barrel full of water, right? now this barrel is going to be emptied as you start taking water out. This pile is going to to start to flatten as you start taking the sand out. You bring these things here and you say, I'm forming something here. As you're forming something, aren't you also deforming something else? You are, aren't you? As you're forming one thing, something else is being deformed. So, does that not tell you then, then, everything is always in some form in this universe. Before you took it and put it here, there was already a certain form. See? This form was already there. But you have a a mind, and the mind can take on drishti, and the mind can take on an agenda, and then it tries to act out that agenda. And once you start doing that, this form starts to flatten out, starts to diminish, starts to disappear. But this form begins to appear. You're happy when this form takes place, but this is also a form. This is also a structure. So is this. Yeah. When you take, say you're baking a cake, right? and, to, and to make the mixture, you take flour, Right? Maybe you take icing sugar and you start mixing it all together. So, um, sugar and flour and water and maybe some butter and you start mixing it together. As you do that, you're creating something, aren't you know? You're creating a structure. But as you're creating this structure, you're also deforming another structure. What other structures are you deforming? What about the butter? Maybe it came in a box. Maybe it came in a tub. Right that is being deformed now. What about the flower? It was in a in a packet right and now, so if that packet was a maybe a cuboid right now you're you're taking flour from that, and that packet is now starting to flatten out but you're you're creating the mixture somewhere else, and that is starting to take shape. so as you're creating this shape, ladies and gentlemen, don't you realize that you're also causing chaos somewhere else? As you're, giving this new, if you're, as you're creating this new structure, an existing structure is deforming. You can't not do that, can you? So that goes to prove to you, does it not, that everything is always in something. It's always in some kind of structure. But if that is not the structure that you want... If you have a specific structure in mind, if you have a certain agenda in mind, then you will keep on using your thoughts, words and actions. These are the Sankara. Your thoughts, words and actions will be acted out in order to take objects, elements, materials from this world that are already in some structure to create a structure of your own choosing. That is what we do. When you eat, that is what you do. See, take an apple for instance. Is that not a structure? Is there something particularly wrong about an apple? The way an apple is, its shape? Is there something you don't like about it? Is there something wrong about an apple? No, then why do you take it apart to create this? What's wrong with the way an apple is? Why don't you let the apple be? You eat the apple. As you eat the apple, what are you doing? You're taking it apart, you're disintegrating it so that it can be integrated in another shape. What shape is that? Whatever shape you are. So it's already, and it, was, it is always in a certain structure. Yeah but you, but you use energy to deform that structure and form another structure. And that is your structure. So when you, when you feed your child the apple, what you want to, what you're trying to do as a mother or a father is to deform the structure of the apple and form it in another way. That is what you're doing. <clears throat> which is right and which is wrong? What's wrong about an apple? What's wrong about the structure of an apple? So why don't you just let it be? Why do you have to deform it and form something else? If it was up to God, then he wouldn't care. It doesn't matter which form it takes. But for you, it matters. You don't care about apples and the way apples are. Therefore, you will eat into the apple. You'll eat the apple. You'll start taking out parts of the apple because you want it reconfigured. You want it arranged in a different way. And that way is your way. Therefore, what we do as human beings is constantly keep on changing the outside world because we have an agenda to enact. That's what you do. Drushti allows your energy to be manipulated in, in, in certain ways. You maneuver your, your, the energy that, that you have access to. Don't you have access to energy? When you raise your arm, what are you doing? You're manipulating energy. You're maneuvering energy in a way that you want to, right? That's what you do when you raise your arm. When you speak, when you shake your head, right? You're, you're actually, you have access to lots of energy when you're walking around. This is energy. So, you're making use of energy to get something done. What is that something? Who decides that? Who has that agenda? You have that agenda depending on the drushti that you take, that you have in mind. That's what you're doing. But does the universe have a certain agenda for energy? The only agenda that the universe has is disintegration. For energy to remain to, to return to a state of rest, because when matter has energy, then matter is con- in a constant state of motion, and there's friction, and there's all sorts of things. But what the universe wants is to be at peace, to to be at rest. But you have this energy form called the chitta. A chitta can take on drishti, and once the chitta takes on drishti, really, you know, when you think about what these drishti are most of your drushti are to do with how you want to change the outside world is it not just think about it for a second when you have drushti whatever drushti whatever views you have much of those views many of those views are about how you want to change the outside world arrangement do you not agree with that you know when you when you eat you're changing the outside world arrangement if you have a certain look that you want to maintain that's also an outside world arrangement that you want to change. If you want to be somewhere, you're here but you want to be somewhere else. That's also an outside world arrangement that you want to change. So you'll pick yourself up from here and you'll take yourself where you, where you want to be and then you, you'll now say, now I'm there. I went there. I've come here, you'll say. That is again changing something about the outside world. See, much of your views are actually about, ladies and gentlemen, changing the outside world order. So you have an order in mind. That's why they're called orders. You place an order on energy. In fact, that order is also an order. So you you place an order on energy and this order is what then takes takes place. This order is what is is enacted out there. The chitta is able to enforce that order onto matter and other forms of energy. Do you like the Greek lesson today? Is this making sense? I don't know. I'm just speaking my mind out. <laughs> Things that seem very clear to me, I'm 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 spelling them out for you and hopefully it's making making sense to you as well. Really what I'm trying to get across is the point of anicca. You know, with all this all these explanations, what I'm trying to get you to understand is there are no entities out there. All of this is just cause and effect. It's just a whole totality of cause and effect. There are no fixed entities out there. Anicca and manifestations, these are all the things that are there. That's why I'm talking in, in, in the speak of energies and matter and how chaos and order, you know, all of these things must, must convince you that there are no entities out there there are simply causes and, and, and their and the effects that manifest. But the chitta has a special place in all of this. And that special place is because the chitta can take on, take on views. It is these views that are then acted out through kaya-sankara, vachi-sankara and mano-sankara. When you speak something, you are converting a view to words. When you're physically doing something, that is also another view you're converting into actions. See, you have a view that this is how you drink water. That's a view. See? So, what happened there? How did Swami Namase drink water? There's a view. There's a view about a few things. First of all, he experienced thirst. Who's he? When I say he experienced thirst, who am I talking about? He. Chitta. I'm talking about a chitta. What gender is a chitta? Male or female? Is it a he or she? Chittas don't have genders. Right? It's just, these are just merely conventions. Yeah? So if if someone were to ask you, prove your gender, what part of you are you going to show? You'll have to show a part of the body, won't you? How else can you prove that you are a male or a female? You can only show a part of your physical form. You can't show any other aspect of yourself. You can't say, well, my name is Saman, therefore I am male. you can't say that. My name is John, therefore I am male. My name is Anne, therefore I am female. You can't say that. Where is the Anne in you? Which part of you is Anne? These are just conventional names that someone else has given you. You, you. you borrowed that from someone. You will return it on the day of your death. Won't you? Your name? You just borrowed it for, what, 60 years? And when, you're, when you leave, you, you return it. Can you take it with you to the grave? Your tombstone might have it inscribed on it, but that's it. Were you called the same thing you are called today, last birth? Did you have the same name? No, then you only borrowed it and you had it for your last life, didn't you? So in your next birth, you're going to get yourself a different name. So it's just something you rent. So, Why why are people so concerned about their names then?
1: Huh?
0: Don't get it wrong. Even if you miss a syllable, people get offended. Hmm? Nowadays, they don't have to get the name wrong if they get the title wrong. It's- your, your title is that. Someone says, Mr. No, no, doctor. Huh. <laughs> That's enough to offend people. Someone says, Miss. No, I'm Mrs. I'm Mrs. Take that down. <laughs> and someone says, Doctor. No, no, I'm Professor. Take it down. Don't forget. Don't make that same mistake again. <laughs> people get so offended. Something that they have just borrowed. For what? Fifty years? Actually you can't borrow the title for a doctor for fifty years, you know you by the time you become one, it's already it's already fifty. <laughs> right? Then maybe you have another five years, ten years. Lease. Hmm? You've already paid the lease up front, haven't you? All the education that you had to take was the price that you had to pay so that you could keep that title with you for how many years? For time, Im, Im for until you know forever and ever and ever? No. Of course not. Of course not. So you already you always pay up front. For an unknown period of time. This is the only time you rent things for an unknown period of time. You don't know for how long. It could be a day. You know, you go to your graduation, they they give you the, the cloak and the Thing, and then you say uh, you, are, you are now a doctor on the, way back, on the way back home they get into a car crash accident dead but they paid upfront, maybe 10 years of hard work to get yourself that title so anyhow none of these things belong to you so when I talk about you know Swami Nasi drinking water he was thirsty who's the he that is thirsty does a chitta feel thirsty no but the chitta perceives thirst it is only a chitta that can perceive thirst. In fact, thirst is a perception. So I was, I was talking about exercise earlier. Remember, when you don't feel like you know you can, you you have to do 50, you start with that as a goal. But by the time you do your maybe 15, right, you you get you feel exhausted. That is because you start to feel the sensations that are stimulated around your body but these are all electrical impulses that come to your brain and the brain translates them into sparsha rupa and these sparsha rupa are what you perceive. So therefore that pain is nowhere to be found in any part of your body. It is only in your mind. This physic, These physical discomforts as well as comforts, you know, if that feels good, ladies and gentlemen, it's not. it does not feel good here. It does not feel good here and that does not hurt here either. That sensation is only a perception. These are all electrical signals. That's it. See, these are two physical things coming together and as a, as a result of that contact, an electrical impulse travels through your nerves. That's it. The same happens as you flick your fingers out, just out of your ear. The same thing happens when you put a source of light in front of your eyes. If something comes into contact with your nostrils... Right? or some food item comes into contact with your tongue, these are all stimuli. They, they can only generate an electrical, electrical impulse. So it is at the mind, with an interaction with the brain, that they are translated into the sensations that you experience, and you call it the outside world. These are all perceptions. So when you think you're thirsty, as I was giving the example earlier, when you feel you're thirsty, that is just an electrical impulse that has been translated into a sparsha rupa and that is perceived as an electric as a as as thirst. In fact, if you were to plug those nerves that take information about the lack of water, okay, so the brain has a way of picking up that the body needs water, right? If those electrical impulses were connected somehow to maybe your auditory center or to your visual center, Right when you' when you're actually thirsty, in other words, when the body is lacking in water, you might start to see flashes of light, or you might actually start to hear things, maybe a you know a slight hum that's what you start to hear. but what's going on is the body is has a shortage of water you're only experiencing the world the way you are because of the way that causes and effects are manifesting perceptions so what I'm asking you to do is, come to, un- come, to your- come to an understanding about the dynamics of how these systems work. You know, you're all systems after all. You know you are, the- you are a digestive system. You know you are a respiratory system. You know you are a circulatory system. You know you are a reproductive system. These are all systems, yeah? These systems are what you carry around with you. They work in a certain order. Come to your senses that you are nothing more than matter and energy brought together in a certain way, right? So, Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, this is all you are. And your mind perceives all these events that take place in and around you. But because of jati, it creates a completely different persona. And then it personifies the body and thinks itself as mine. It thinks of the mind as me, and the body as mine, and then as a result of that all there is is suffering and the eleven great fires that ensue. This is all that is going on. So don't, you know, don't credit yourself too much. In fact if you come to your senses you realize, you know, who's there to credit? You are overrated. I'm not insulting anyone, hopefully. (laughs) When I say you are overrated, what I mean by that is, you have completely misconstrued who you are. You have completely misinterpreted who you are. You are not who you think you are. So, open your eyes and wake up to the truth. You are not who you think you are. Who do you think you are? See, even that sounds aggressive, doesn't it? Who do you think you are? people don't actually mean that when they ask that they mean something completely different who the heck do you think you are to huh? talk to me like that what they're saying is i'm bigger than you right i deserve respect you're not you're not giving me you're not giving me the respect that i deserve so who do you think you are so what they're doing is out of moha huh, again they're comparing there's you and there's me and i'm better than this I'm better than you, so why are you you talking to me like that? That is completely wrong. And I'm asking you this question in a very different different meaning. Who do you think you are? I'm asking the chitta that lives within you somewhere, who you think, the chitta, I'm asking the chitta, dear chitta, who do you think you are? And you have all sorts of answers to give to this. I asked the mothers (coughs) in the house to put their arms up, when you put your hand up, you are in, incarnated as a mother in that chitta. In that chitta, you have punarbhava A mother is born in the chitta. In that chitta, a mother is born. That's why I started to draw this and then I got sidetracked. See, take this chitta for a second. Right? Let's say you are at the office. Okay, You are at the office and you are doing some work. So maybe you're you're a, maybe you're a receptionist. Let's just say, right? You say so you're picking up the phone, you're answering the calls, right? You're making the appointments, right? And you're uh, giving people instructions on how to how to come to the company and what other services you provide, and so on. So you're on the phone, you're talking, and then your boss comes up to you. And when the boss comes up to you, you feel subordinate, don't you? Because my boss is my senior, I'm the junior. Therefore, you feel subordinate. See, so see, in that chitta, ladies and gentlemen. You incarnate a receptionist. Try and understand what I mean by this. In that chitta, you incarnate, meaning punarbhava happens. A receptionist is born in that chitta. That is all. That is the only place you can find a receptionist in a chitta. In a chitta, a receptionist is born. The full the full package. A, c- a receptionist is born in that chitta. But let's say the boss talks to you and then they leave and your phone rings, your mobile rings. You answer and someone says, Ami, what time are you coming home tonight? What is the incarnation now? Mother. Are you a receptionist at that moment? No. In that chitta, you are not a receptionist. So a mother has incarnated. Punar Bhava. creates. creates, recreates. But an arahant, for an arahant this doesn't happen because only the only thing that goes on with an arahant is kinam purana. Purana is your vipaka. The exhaustion of vipaka is the only thing that happens for an arahant. In the vipaka you don't have receptionist vipakas. There are no such vipakas. There are no mother vipakas. Vipakas are merely sight, sound, smells, taste and touch. And thoughts. These are the only vipakas. Or you can... Even say, Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, These are the Vipakas. There are no receptionist Vedana. There are no mother Sankaras. <laughs> there are no such things. But of course, there are Drishti. And according to a Drishti, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara can, can take place accordingly. But that's all there are. But there are no mother Vipakas or receptionist Vipakas or boss Vipakas or employee Vipakas. There are no such things. So, the mother, the child speaks to you and the child says, Oh, I mean, hold on a second. Tati wants to talk to you. So, he passes the phone to Tati. Now Tati is on the phone. Yes. So, what have you incarnated now? Hmm? Now, wife. So, don't you believe in reincarnation? Do you have to die for that? No. I mean, in every chitta... Punar Bhava happens. Because Bhava, where does Bhava happen? In a chitta. Where else does Bhava happen? Avidya, Pachya, Sankara, Pancha, vinyana, Namrupa, Salayatana, Pasa, Vedana, tanha, Upadana, and Bhava. Where does all this happen? It all takes place in a (coughs)
1: chitta.
0: All takes place in a chitta. So, this Bhava is what you perceive you are. Where's that I? Where's the I gone? This I. So when I ask you, who are you? It depends. It depends on what the bhava is in each chitta. That's why when you are, a, when you are a, an employee, when you are a worker, you are a worker. But when you get a promotion, now you, you replace your drishti. So then you think, previously I used to be the worker, but now I'm the boss. So the worker dies, and the boss is born. But you can always go back in in memory. And you can say, you know, when I used to be the worker here, things weren't like this, things were terrible. But then I became the boss, and I changed everything. And now, things are very good at the place, at at where where we work. You say that. But… When you are at home, or even when you are in the office and you are speaking to your child on the phone, you are speaking to your husband on the phone, in that moment, who are you? You are that persona, aren't you? See, you have multiple identities. Depends on the environment. Depends on those causes. Depends on your drishti. you have multiple identities. You have a multiple identity disorder. That's what you have, because in one moment I ask you, "Who are you?" You say, "I'm a Sri Lankavikasa." I'm very proud to be one. Wait till you get home. <laughs> then who are you? <laughs> now you're not a Sri Shravika. <laughs> now you're a mother, <laughs> huh? So say say you're a Sri You go back home, and you have you know husband at home. So your husband is going to tell you what? Yeah. Don't you come and all Silastravika me, right? When you're at home, <laughs> you're the wife, right? You're the mother, I'm the husband, right? And things have to happen as I laid down the rules, right? This is my house, you're here, that's how you got to work. Right? But when you're back at the monastery, you can be your Silastravika whatever you want. <laughs> Don't you be your Sivika here at home? It can happen the other way around as well. That's why, they say, that's why we say, you know, wherever you are, be there. Because people will expect that of you. You know, no matter how interested and how focused and how determined you are to attain Nibbana, when you are at the office, you have to be at the office, right? Yeah, if you have to tell someone off. Maybe you have an employer, you subordinate and they've not, done their, they've not met their performance goals. Now you have to tell them off. You can't say, ping what? mahatya. Yeah. You can't do that. You can't be calling your subordinates Mahatya, Mahatya, Mahatya. Right? You can't be calling them that. You call them by their name. right? Or you call them here.
1: Huh?
0: Or mister. You can't be calling them Mahatya. But when you're here, you take a different persona. So who are you then? It depends on what your incarnation is. In each chitta, you are reincarnated. You are incarnated as someone or somebody else. In each chitta. Now, then one day you will decide to become a monk. See, you now it'll happen over the next couple of days. Right? Some of our Anagarika Mahathas will go on to become monks. Right? So if they are if they are not contemplating on the Dhamma, if if they're not living by the Dhamma, if they're not living righteously. Now, here righteously I don't mean abstaining from the unmeritorious deeds and only doing the meritorious deeds, that's not the righteousness I refer to here. Here, because righteousness is not really the Dhammachari, it is one interpretation of it, but here what I mean is are you living the Dhamma? Are you living Anicca? Are you contemplating Anicca? Are you contemplating on Dukkha? Are you contemplating on Anatta? If you are contemplating on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta in that Chitta, we don't even need to have a conversation about. You know, on merits and 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 sorry, demerits and merits, because merits and demerits are all out the window at that time, because this is all kusal now, not ping and pow. You know, when we talk about anicca and anatta, now we are talking about the three-dimensional world, right? In a three-dimensional world, there are no merits and demerits. There are just causes and effects. That's all there are. It's only in you know, because in that world. There is no karma. There is no generation of karma. There is only the exhaustion of vipaka. That's why an arahant is kinam purana. So purana is the vipaka, previously generated vipaka. Kinam is the exhaustion of it, the consumption of it, making use of it. So an arahant merely consumes vipaka that has already been generated. Navanati sambhava. No more bhava. So in an arahant chitta, the arahant never feels that I am a mother. They don't perceive that. In the way that you perceive that you are a mother, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, an arahant does not perceive that. But they understand why you might call them a, a mother. So, you know, mothers here, once you become an arahant, your child might still come up to you and say, Ammi, he might even hold your hand. You know well and truly why your child is calling you mother. You know that. And biologically, you know that there's a physical connection here as well. But mentally, you are no longer a mother. But when Prince Rahula went and held on to the Buddha's little finger, you know he didn't pull his arm away and say, Oh, go away. Who do you think I am? Who do you think you are? How dare you call me father? I'm not your father. I'm the Buddha. Is there any record of that having ever happened? No, of course not. But the Buddha realizes now that he's he's not a father just to Rahula, He's a father to the entire universe. But it's a different interpretation of father, isn't it? One who liberates, one who gives the truth, one who frees, one who gives the dhamma, one who gives the truth. That is the father now. One who gives salvation. One who shows the path. In that sense, he is father. So when Rahula comes up to me and says, Father, please give me my inheritance. The Buddha says, "Yep, yeah, let's go. I'll give you your inheritance, all right. <laughs> <clears throat> if you'd gone and held the Buddha's hand, say you are not related to the the, the Prince Siddhartha, right? You, are, of course, we are not related to him. Right? But let's say back then, you were just a stranger, bystander, and you saw this happening. You saw Rahula, the prince, go and hold on to the Buddha's uh, right hand. You go and hold on to his left hand. And say, Buddha, can I, father, can I, also, can I also have my inheritance? What do you think the Buddha is going to say? Who do you think you are? You're not my son. Get lost. <laughs> do you think the Buddha is going to say that? No, he'll say, yep, sure, let's go. I'm your father, you're my child, and I'm going to give you your inheritance. See, what does he mean by, I'm your father, and you're my child? Has a very different meaning to what you might mean today when your child holds your hand. Because the Buddha doesn't, doesn't incarnate a father in his mind. It doesn't happen. Because it's not something that he does deliberately. You don't, nothing, Actually, there is nothing that you do deliberately. Things happen because of causes. Causes and effects are what go on here. But, you see, do you hear or the hearing happens and then you come? Which way around is it? Absolutely. Hearing happens first, you come later. So how can you say I hear? How is the chitta born? Chakkunta patiche, rupecha upajati chakuvijnana. Oh, Sotanta, patiche, saddecha, upajati, sotavijnana. Right? That's how a chitta works. So a chitta is born when eye and sight come into contact. In fact, if you were to take a chitta and give it back to its rightful owners, say we found a lost chitta somewhere, hmm? you find a chitta in, a, in the lost and found <laughs> box. Huh? You find a lost chitta and now you are looking for its rightful owner. Who do you give it back to? Who are its owners? If you found a child missing, a lost child, who would you return the child to? Its parents, right? You would return the child to the child's parents. If you found a lost chitta somewhere, Say you are walking around, you find a lost Chitta. Chitta is lost. Chitta comes, I am lost. Please can you return me to my rightful owners? Who do you return the Chitta to? Hmm? Sight and? Eye and sight. That's it. These are the parents. Chakuncha paticha rupecha chaku chakuingana That is who you return the the, the, the eye consciousness to. What if it is a sound consciousness? Who do you return that to? Sound and? And yeah, because these are the parents who's coming together spawned this sound consciousness. But once it's born, something else also happens. Ignorance and attachment test take place, and as ignorance and attachment takes place, now it begins to feel that it is an identity, a unique chitta. It thinks it now. Then it completely ignores the fact that it was born out of. I apologize So I'll keep on, I do, I have to keep on apologizing, is once enough? So that apology was for every cough, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry, All right, let's carry on. So when you find a chitta, if it's a sight consciousness, and you want to find out, you want to you find out who this chitta belongs to, if you split it half and half, you'd have to give half of that chitta to the sight, half of that chitta to the eye. They are both products of vipaka. Both the eye and sight are products of vipaka. So, if both parents are products of vipaka, then what can you tell about the child? What can you say about the child? It is also a product of vipaka. So, then who do you belong to? What do you mean, who do I belong to? I am me and I belong to myself. That's exactly what you feel. This is your misinterpretation, this is ignorance. You feel that you are an identity, and you belong to you, and you know parts of your body belong to you. You feel you feel that your thoughts belong to you. Just imagine this for a second. If I could read your thoughts, just just imagine, right? Now we are, we all feel that we are independent individuals, right? And we should have freedom of thought, right? We should have freedom of thought. Just imagine there was someone, there was a a a, a, a thought thief. Just imagine there was a thought thief. So as you think things, they can read. So telepathically, they can read what you're thinking and then they will start stealing your ideas, your your thoughts. Won't you feel offended? I mean, don't you feel offended when someone completes your sentence? You want, you want to say something, you say, oh, today by the way, I'm going to, and someone says, Come home, no, wait until I finish. You feel offended when someone tries to complete your sentences because you want your you want your independence, you want your identity you have you want to be acknowledged. you know, wait, I have something to say, and let me finish what I have to say because it is my thought that I want to express these are my ideas. so if someone were to come along and snatch your thoughts, snatch your ideas, you would feel. Incredibly offended. Let's say the next thing you're going to say, someone else comes and thinks it and, and says, "I know what you're going to say, so I'll say it for you." And then they start saying all of your thoughts. They start saying it out loud. So if you start to feel, maybe you feel uh, you feel an, an affection towards someone. Someone someone gets to someone picks it up because they can telepathically read your mind. You will begin to feel offended because you'll feel, where is my independence? I don't like it when people read my thoughts. You don't come across this every day. That's why you, don't, you can't relate to what I'm saying. But if there was someone who could read all your thoughts, trust me, you would feel very uncomfortable about that. You would. You know, good thoughts, bad thoughts, mediocre thoughts. If, people were, if there was someone who could start reading your thoughts, you wouldn't want to live with them. As much as you feel that you might want to, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to live with them. But then you're always looking around, asking for someone, why can't you understand me? Why can't you think like I do? Right? You go around asking people that, right? When you want to live with someone, when you want, when you have a par- you want to live with a partner, or when you want to go out with someone, right, have a relationship, you're looking for someone who can understand you. But just imagine if they could understand you so much that they can understand all of your thoughts, they can read all your thoughts, they can conceive all your thoughts, you wouldn't live a day with them. There's a reason for that you'll feel that your identity has been stolen from you the only thing that is mine when once everything else is taken from me is what your thoughts the things that i think huh? when the sights the things that i see because the things that i see i can't claim to i can't claim to have individual rights on because you and i we both see the same thing don't we we both hear the same things, we, we can both taste the same things, we can both smell the same things, we can both sense and feel the same things, but there is something that you have and that you can claim to be yours and yours alone, what are they? Your? Your what? Your thoughts. Now if someone were to come along and snatch your thoughts, so that everything you think, before you think it, they'll think it. So before you start to say a sentence, they will say it and then you realize, hey, that's exactly what I was going to say. Do you think living with someone like that would be good? No, it wouldn't make you go insane. Because you'll feel your your identity has been violated. You'll feel that, trust me. So don't ever wish for that. So whenever you are you know you know having an argument with your other half or you know in, in kind of an altercation you say why can't you understand me why don't you why are you always against my thoughts right for one day can't you just understand where i'm coming from and think like me if they did <laughs> if they did for one day i right? think everything you think right you wouldn't want to live with them <laughs> because you will feel that your identity has been violated because in this world, ladies and gentlemen, you want things that you feel are only yours, you have access to, only you have access to. Your husband is one of them. You don't want anyone else feeling about your husband the way you do about him. It is what gives you identity. It, it is what carves out a part of this world and makes you feel that you are on top of it. Each and every one of you are standing on top of the world. Each and every one of you. What that world is, you determine. You decide. Your world will be different, sir, and your world will be different, madam. But, for each of you, you've all created a world and you're, st- you're standing on top of that world. And you're saying, this is my world. Like the Guta Kadha Bredya, that stands on, front of, uh, on top of a pile of dung and says, this is my world. This is mine. I am king. In the same manner, we all create a world in our minds. And we stand on top of that world and we say, this is my world. I am king. It's going on in your minds right now. This is because of jati. This is the world that you claim is yours. So in your world, if you are a mother, then you are, there, are, there are those who are your children. So then your children have to do what you want them to do. You are boss. When you are, when you are a wife, then you, are, you have things that you want your, your husband to do, because you are, you are the wife, he's the husband. And if you are the husband, there are things that you want your wife to do, because you are the husband. If you are a teacher, that's another incarnation. See, try and spot yourself incarnating in each of these chittas. You can't catch individual chittas, I grant you that, but at least when you incarnate as someone, right, now there there are no grounds for you to deny reincarnation, are there? Because we are not talking about what happens after death. I'm talking about you in this very body. In this body, these are also bodies. I don't mean just the square on the outside. There is also a body, but so is the chitta that arises in in this body. There is also a body. What is a body again? An aggregation, an accumulation, a coming together. That is what a body is, a body of water. Think always, when I say body, think of a body of water. This is just water together, right? So here, the mind is also a body. These are causes coming together, and they manifest as an effect. So when you, when you feel that you are a mother, you have incarnated in that chitta as a mother. So therefore, you see, in a chitta where you feel you are a mother, do you do anything that a mother doesn't? All your actions are then, they converge with the, with the conception of a mother. The notion of a mother, they all agree with what a mother does. So say you know sometimes you will have you'll have you'll find it challenging take for instance if you're if you've ever been a teacher and you're also you have a student in your class who is your biological child I don't know whether anyone has this experience you're a teacher and your child is also in the class now my father used to be a teacher at one point and I used to be in his classes so i remember he used to talk to me before classes and say in class, I'm not your dad. Right, so you can't be calling me Apache. <laughs> I, remember, I remember that conversation like, like it was yesterday. He said, you can't be calling me Apache. I said, shall I call you sir? He said, no, you don't need to call me sir either. That seems really weird. Just put your hand up and I'll ask you <laughs> what you want to say. You say it, but you can't be behaving like you're at home with me. At, in the classroom, I'm the teacher and you're a student. So we set the, the, you know, the rules. We agreed on that on the first day of class. So he used to teach me math and science. But you see, now if ever, you've been in that situation where you are a teacher and you are also a mother or a father and you have your child in the classroom, sometimes you have this, these moments where you will switch between teacher and mother. It will happen like this because, you know, you only incarnate in a chitta. So say you're, even if, Let's say two children have been in a fight, right? And they come to you. They come to you as the teacher because you are in charge of discipline at school, and then the two children have come to you, and one of them is your child. Now you are really torn. (laughs) You have this real dilemma at this moment. What do you do? Because in your mind, you know that I am the mother or the father, and then you also know this I am a teacher, and you'll also know this others know that I am the mother. Right? So they're going to start to think that I'm going to have favorations towards my child, so I have to be aware of that. Yeah? It becomes a minefield, doesn't it? <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> if, if ever you're a parent, I, I wish and pray that you would never find yourself in this situation where you're also the teacher and you're having to, fi- you're having to resolve an argument. <laughs> because what you know you know that they know that you are the parent and therefore that you will be biased. So you have to prove to them that you are not biased either. So even now, and it makes it even more difficult, when after you've had the, uh, when, you, when after you've resolved the conflict, you realize that your child is the innocent one. That makes it even more difficult, because if they're the guilty party, it's easier, because you can punish your child. But now if they're the, if they're the, the innocent party, now, but the other person doesn't agree with this, of course. Let's just imagine that the other person's, the other child's mother is also a teacher, <laughs> someone that you know, uh, one of your colleagues in at at school. Now, what sort of problem do you have on your hands? <laughs> Better to go to hell than to solve this problem, isn't it? <laughs> see, it's because in those chittas, you know, you keep jumping. I'm a teacher. I'm a parent. I have to be seen as. Righteous. I can't be seen to be biased, so I have to be an unbiased person. All of these personas you are playing in your head. All the while you are jumping from chitta to chitta, like a monkey jumps from tree to tree. In each of these chittas, you live a different persona. These are all incarnations. For an arahant, they don't have this problem at all. Because an arahant does not perceive that they are a teacher. They don't perceive that they are a, a parent. But they know that they are a teacher. They know that. And they know that biologically this body has a connection with, this, with the other body. They know this, by, this is just knowledge. So knowing something and living it are very different things. Jati, What jati does is it, it makes you live your knowledge. That's what jati does. It makes you live your knowledge. Whatever you know, you know that you are a father, jati personifies that. It, it it doesn't leave it at simply an, a piece of knowledge. It consumes you. It makes you that knowledge. It completely wraps you up with that. It makes you the identity, and you become part and parcel of that. That is what jati does. But a chitta that has no jati, a chitta that is free of jati, simply perceives that in this situation, I am the teacher. I am considered the teacher. And as a teacher, there are certain duties and responsibilities that I have to fulfill. And in front of me is a student. So I have to now talk to them and discuss the problem that they've had. All the while, the, the, the Arahant knows that I'm also thought as the father or the, the mother of this child. Right? And now in certain situations, in certain environments, they will have some rules that right? if you are also the parent, then you should not be admonishing the child. Uh, you should not be getting involved in resolving that conflict. You should pass it over to somebody else. In certain schools, I think they'll have regulations like that because it makes it easier. Otherwise, there's always the the concern of bias and favoritism and all that. And sometimes, even when the teacher is not showing any particular favoritism, it can still be construed that way. And then people will start to accuse. Yeah, that's why you know they she took her side. She took her her boys' side. And that's why you know they uh, he didn't get as much punishment as the other child and so on. So to avoid all that, you know, people come up with various mechanisms and various agreements in the world, but all of this is because in each shitta you incarnate. This is Punar Bhava. Natin Navan Sambhava is the nature of an arahant. So for an arahant, all that happens is. They live in each chitta. The arahant knows this. Each chitta is all there is. And a chitta is a product of eye and sight. A chitta is a product of sight or sound and ear. A chitta is a product of smell and nose or taste and tongue. right? Or a thought and mind. And arahant knows this. You know it now. But an arahant has entirely internalized it. What we are about is... To do now is what we are trying to do now is we've learnt it from our teachers and now we are trying to internalize it. So, whilst this internalization happens, you will have your knowledge of the Dhamma and you will have the experience that you have right now, sometimes at odds. You will feel that they are at conflict. You will experience this from time to time. Where you have a knowledge of the Dhamma, you know that all there is is a citta but you still feel that you are... A mother. You feel that you are a spouse. You feel that you are a child. You feel that you are a brother. Right? You feel you are a partner. You'll feel these things. And then you'll come to come back to your senses. But hang on a second. All there are are chittas. And a chitta cannot feel that I am a spouse. Why does? Why do I feel that way? So you'll have to have some way of reconciling this. And that reconciliation is you come into terms of dukkha. If you remember from last week, I, say, I reminded you. That there is always anicca sanya and anatta sanya, but there isn't a dukkha sanya. There is no such thing. There is no such thing called a dukkha sanya. What there is is dukkha. Dukkha, Arya, Satya. That is what there is. There is dukkha, Samudaya, Arya, Satya. These are Satya, these are truths. These are not sanya. But dukkha is what happens in the mind, and when dukkha happens in the mind, in that moment, ladies and gentlemen, you fail to see anicca as it is, you fail to see anatta as it is. As a result of that, dukkha forms as well. So dukkha is the product of your inability of the chitta itself. So if, it's, if in this chitta dukkha is born, therefore you now become a person, a person, you incarnate as a person. right? So in this chitta, let's say, in this chitta you are a mother. Okay, in this chitta, if you are a mother, then there's a particular aggregate, five aggregates that you think is your child. It's part and parcel of it, right? If you are a mother, then somewhere in this world, there are a collection of aggregates that you refer to as child. Even if it, it's not there now, say your child, you know, died in a car accident, still you'll say, I'm a mother, but my child died. Right? So still, there, are, there is a collection of the five aggregates which you refer to as a child, and that is why you incarnate as a mother. So this, these five aggregates that you are, you refer to as, a ch- as mother, and those five aggregates you refer to as a child. That is the incarnation that takes place. So when that incarnation takes place takes place, now that is Jati doing that. But this chitta. Oh, let's take the next one. If in this chitta, if in this chitta, jati doesn't happen, this is a, this is purely a chitta. If, if, if jati doesn't happen here, there would have been a sight or a sound still, otherwise a chitta cannot be born. Remember I said, if you split the chitta up, if you find a lost chitta, and you have to return it to its rightful owners, you'll have to give one half of it to the five senses, and the other half of it to the stimuli that came into contact with the senses. These are the two entities to which a chitta would belong if it had to belong to someone. Does it belong to anyone? No, but if it had to, the rightful owners of a chitta would be sight and eye. Oh, sound and, yeah, and so on. But when you feel that you are a mother, your child, now your child says, I can see. Yeah? How does the child see? The same way that you see. How do you see? Eye and sight come into contact. How does the child see? the same way chakunja paticcha rupecha uppajjati chakuvijnana so the same thing happens here now when i talk about you and i ask you vinyana, who does that belong to well if it is chakunja paticcha rupecha uppajjati chakuvijnana then you you will have to say well if the sight consciousness were to belong to someone it would have to be i and sight then, when your child says, I can see, the child saying that the child can see, who does that belong to? Did you get the question? When you are talking about eye consciousness, and if you are trying to find who the eye consciousness belongs to, you are going to have to say that is the eye plus sight. Right? Because the two of them gives you eye consciousness. Yeah? So now, when you are talking about the child, the child says, I can see who does that belong to? That eye consciousness, who does it belong to? Same, I and sight. If the child says, I can hear, who does that belong to? If it had to belong to someone, hear and, and sound, right? So you get the drill. You know the same goes for all of the other consciousness types. Okay, so this is our, these are all the consciousness, this is all in the consciousness realm. If you were to split your child in half, you have the consciousness realm and you have the physical realm. So the physical part of the child, so the body, this body, the physical body. Who does that belong to? What, you know, if if, if we are, if to find the owners of something, we are looking for what created it, that's what we're doing in consciousness. We are to create, to find the owner of consciousness, we are looking for the things that created it. Yeah? Who does your child belong to? The parents. Why? Because the parents created the child. Right? If that is the, if that is the principle that we are using to identify the owners of something, now you are okay with consciousness. Because consciousness belongs to its owners, eye and sight. What about the physical body? Who's the owner? Where did it come from? Who created it? It's the food that you ate, right? It's just the food that was eaten. Is there any part of you that, is, that was not previously something that you ate? Any part of you that was not something that you ate? Or that your mother ate while you were in, in her womb? Hmm? So everything that you are, everything that you are is something that either you ate or someone else ate on your behalf, by which I mean when you were a, just a fetus in the mother's womb. Right? The mother would have eaten and that is what would have gone into making you. So if you still have parts of you that were produced while you were just, an, uh, just a fetus, right? then that is still something that your mother would have eaten and by eating she would have had to put it through her mouth. So therefore, all of what you are, everything of what you are, is something that has come through food. So therefore, then take your child now, we've split the child in half, we're talking about consciousness and we're talking about the physical form. The consciousness belongs to I and sight. I belongs to Vipaka, sight belongs to Vipaka. Agreed? Right? That is the karmic energy that was produced by the child in through previous chittas. So if that is the consciousness, now we are left with the body, and the body is completely a product of what has been eaten. Now then, after we've tried to after we've identified the owners of consciousness and we've identified the owners of the physical body, what else is there in your child? Hmm? What else is there? Nothing else. So then, what part of the child belongs to you, as a parent? What part of your child belongs to you as a parent? Tell me. If all the child is his consciousness and the body, physical body, right? And consciousness, there are only six types of consciousness. Chakku vinyana, Sota vinyana, Gahana vinyana, Jihuha vinyana, Kaya vinyana, and Mano vinyana. Right? Each of these vinyana or each of these consciousness is a product of two things coming together. We took the example of eye consciousness, which is eye and sight coming together. We took the example of sound consciousness or hearing consciousness, which is Ear and sound coming together. Take another example of taste consciousness. That's again taste and tongue coming together, right? So wherever we are speaking of consciousness, if we are to find the owners, we have to go looking for what created it. These are the causes that, brought, that came together. Now we've dealt with the consciousness part. All that is left is the physical part, the physical body, the muscles and the bones and the hair and the, and the tissues and all that, right? All of those things are a product of what they have eaten, the food that was put in through their mouths. Do you think that is yours? The food that your child ate, do you feel that it's yours? Hmm? Do you? No, it's just food. You don't feel that it's yours. So then, if that is all a child is, consciousness and the physical body, and we've now identified and located its, the, the owners, what aspects of the child remain to be yours? What? There's nothing. There's nothing, nothing whatsoever of your child belongs to you. Nothing. Just as much as nothing about you belongs to your parents. So nothing about your child belongs to you. So then why do you feel that this is my child? Where is that coming from? Jati, absolutely. Jati is the creator of ownership. There is no other way a sense of ownership can come into the mind. It is only Jati that does that. Because what does Jati do? It separates. See, this is how ownership comes into being, through separation. There are the five aggregates, but you have to separate those aggregates from everything else. And the moment you do that, you feel that those aggregates are now separate. When things are separate, they belong to something. Just as much as you feel that this cap belongs to this pen. Because you feel these two things, as a unit, they're separate to this. So when your sense of separation comes into the mind, along with that comes a sense of ownership. They, they, they are part and parcel. So then why do you struggle to give your child to the sasana? If there are those among you who, who struggle. Because it's my child, Right? Because it's my child, I cannot give him or her to the sasana. Not alone to the sasana, I can't give him or her to anybody, <laughs> for that matter. Because it's my child. I need my child to be with me. The Buddha says, putta matthi You've heard this before. itibalo vihanyati. There's a, you, you understand the superficial meaning of this, but there's also a much more profound meaning. Uttamati mati, Ma Atti is I have. Ma is me Atti. Atti is there, is there. See, that's why you have Atta and Anatta. Right? So in one sense you can take that this is what a balaya or a fool thinks. A fool contemplates that I have my kit and kin, I have my children, I have my property. I have my wealth, so by property, everything is included, right? From little things to the big things, whatever is dhana. Dhana is, of course, the literal translation of dhana is, is wealth, but, you know, we can use it to, we can, the Buddha infers to all material things that you think exists. So, dhanam matti, property exists, exists. Putta matti, people exist. These are the two kinds of existence, right? There are the two kinds of existence, living things and non-living things. Living things exist, non-living things exist. In Sinhalese, you have two words for this. So I'll bring them up just for the sake of easier comprehension for those who understand Sinhalese. Tiyanava and Innava. These are the two words that are used. So Tiyanava is the existence of objects. Innava is the existence of living things. Yeah? So, putta mati mati. These things exist. See, the Buddha, this, this Dhammapada stanza is a description of anicca dukkha and anatta. So profound. Iti balo vihanyati. So, a balaya or a fool, he worries. Of course he worries. Because if things exist, <laughs> what else do you do other than worry? Because when things exist, they have to belong to someone, Right? When there are things that belong to you, of course you are their, their protector. When, and then there are things you don't want to belong to you, now you have to keep them away. What if they end up belonging to you? That becomes a problem. Your friends are yours and you want them to belong to you, your enemies. They also belong to you, they do, but you want them away from you. How do they belong to you? How do your enemies belong to you? How come your enemies belong to you? Don't they? Is it only your friends that belong to you, not your enemies? No, the very fact that they are your enemies, aren't they? They are not universal enemies. <laughs> there is no such thing called a universal enemy. right? So my enemies are my enemies, so they belong to me, but they are enemies. Hmm? Then there are physical material things. There are things that belong to me, that I like. There are things that belong to me, that I don't like. So the things I like I want them to be with me, the things I don't like I want to be I want them to be away from me. All because there are things that exist. Putta matthi, dhanam says so this is a way in which a balaya or a fool worries. Of course we know tanna jayati In these two ways, a balaya or a fool worries. Attahi atta no natti. So that is the third line of the gata. Atta hi The Buddha says, Fool. Not to you. This is the Buddha saying. Right? You fools. When you don't belong to yourself, when even you don't belong to yourself, how can you belong to yourself? Can you? What is you after all? Remember the I? This is just rūpa vedana Sanya sankāra vinyāna. And that consciousness belongs to eye and sight, if it's eye consciousness we are talking about. If it's the body, it's all the things that you've eaten. So therefore, none of that belongs to you. None of this has any belonging whatsoever, no sense of ownership. But when jati happens, jati which is also a product of causes, ignorance and attachment. This is also a product of causes. But when those causes are present, jati is born, and then now because of the jati, you perceive that. The chitta and the body, they both belong to me. But does it? Just because something, you think that something belongs to you, does it immediately become yours? Does it? Then why did you have to go and ask for your father in law's permission? You could have just thought, she belongs to me, that's it. You could have just then gone up to her father and said, belongs to me, okay? They would have said, get lost. Just because something you think something belongs to you doesn't make it yours. Of course, it doesn't. So when does something become yours? If it's not just because you think it's yours, when does it when does something become yours? Think carefully and answer. <laughs> if just because something you think is yours doesn't make it yours, okay, when does something become yours then? What do you have to do? Hmm? Which forms do you have to fill in? Where do you have to sign? When does something become yours? It never becomes yours. It's only a perception that it's mine. It never becomes yours. There is nothing in this world that is yours. So if there is nothing in this world that is yours, then consciousness cannot be yours, and the body cannot be yours, the two of them together cannot be yours, then even this sense of self that you perceive is also merely a product of ignorance and attachment even the sense of ownership, the sense of belonging, the sense of separation, even that is not yours. Kuto Putta, Kuto When even existence or the sense of existence is not an existence. That is the profound meaning of that. Atta is separated entities. So the Buddha says, Atta hi Atta no Even when what you feel exists does not really exist, they are merely perceptions in a mind. Kuto putta, kuto dhana. How can there exist sons, daughters, children, kit and kin, and how can there exist material objects? How can there be the suns and the moons and the stars and the earth? How can there be beings? How can there be things? None of them actually exist All they are are manifestations. See, this is a karmastana that the Buddha would have given to those who are wise to reflect upon. All I see in that gata is anicca dukkha and anatta. This is a very powerful karmastana. So now you can contemplate on that. Puttamati dhanamati. See, putta means, refers to beings. It doesn't just have to be children or sons. It can be putta, it can be beings, any beings, living things. Dhana can be any non-living things, material things. They both exist in your world, don't they? Things exist, people exist. How can there be existence is the next thing that the Buddha asks. How can they exist when your sense of existence doesn't also exist? Did you get that? Even your sense of existence is also a product of causes and therefore it's a manifestation. It is not something that exists. So even when your perception of existence does not exist, how can the things that you perceive to exist, exist? They don't exist. They are merely manifestations. Kutoputta, Kutodana. Reflect upon those words. It's time today. I have to finish the sermon about a quarter of an hour earlier, because noble Heart children have a very special event, as I mentioned right at the start. So they want to do their own Year program. And they've requested whether, if they have asked if I could finish a little bit early so that they can plan things and prepare and organize themselves. So I said, okay. Do rejoice in all that. Right? These are all, these are your products. These are your creations. Not just you being biological parents. I mean, there may be biological parents of the children here in the audience. That's, But that's not just what you have created. It's it's very easy to create a physical body. All you have to do is put some food. Right? And give birth to a child. Anyone can do that. But then to to strengthen the mind to incorporate, inculcate values and virtues, and you know, give good association, noble association. See what the child wanted, children want to do today. This is because of their one-year anniversary at noble hearts. This is what they want to do. What do people generally do on their first year <laughs> anniversary? Indulgence in sensuality, mostly. Party. This is their way of partying. Giving a sangikadan. And so they're doing everything from bringing the monks down for the sermons and preparing themselves, uh, preparing the dhani. They went and did that this morning as well. They woke up early in the morning to do that, prepare the dhani, and then arranging the dhamma hall, all that. All of this is they're doing. We're just there to help and support them, because as, as responsible adults we have to be there to guide them and you must all rejoice in what you have done so as you witness them and they, you see them carrying the dolal the palanquin and carrying the flowers and doing the you know offering all the buddha puja and all that rejoice in what we have collectively done here so this is not just guru hamdro or Mihamdro or any other hamdro doing this this is our collective effort it takes a whole village to bring up a child right and this is something that we have all done together even those who are joining us online Right? There are some who send the children books for their education because they want, they can't be here to look at the ch- children and, and, and share their love with them, but there are those who, who, who donate books and who donate the materials that they require for the school and so on. They've not even seen the, ch- the, the, the face of these children. <laughs> They've only heard about them. But they would realized that the, in the future, they will see an arahant. Right? So towards that great product that will one day walk the surface of this earth and that is what all of these efforts are for so well done all of you i want all of you to rejoice when you see and witness today's procession and today's proceedings and resolve that may these merits help those children to attain their bliss of nibbana and in your rejoicing as you witness them it will also help you on your path as well right let's do the merit transfer and conclude for today Okay, so let us take a moment then to transfer the merits that we have all acquired by making offerings to the infinite virtues of the Noble Triple Gem, inviting the Swami Nuhansi to deliver the sermon and engaging throughout the sermon. First and foremost, let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the Lord Buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude towards the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, upasakas and upasikas, who have since time immemorial protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the Buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the Tripitaka, which is thankfully available to us today to study, understand and comprehend the Dhamma. Let us transfer this mates we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that amongst them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin come rain or shine. Let us also transfer this message to Guru Sam in Nuhansi, as well as all the monks resident at the monastery and the Anagarika and Anagarika communities attached to the monastery. Let us take a moment to transfer this message and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the Buddha, be that by transliterating these talks, sharing them out with others, or inviting others to join them, May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits. May they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcoming obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibban. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these meds to our devotees and friends at the monastery who, for the sake of merits, continue to sustain the Mahasangha. This includes everyone from those of you who provide the Mahasangha with shelter, arms, robes and medicines, as well as continue to extend their well wishes and pass on their know-how. May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits. May they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nirvana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. There is also transfer these merits to our mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, nephews and nieces, our friends, our acquaintances, our employers and our employees, as well as our teachers and those who have helped us, supported us and assisted us in every way, shape or form. May they all rejoice in these merits and by the power of these merits. May they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbāna. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to devas and Brahmas. Spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva, as well as all the numerous gods and deities who have committed themselves to protect and fulfil the samdhasasana, let us transfer these merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfil the meritorious deeds, fulfil the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us also take a moment to transfer these merits to our ancestors who have predeceased us, to all who have been friends and families to us in this infinitely long journey of sansara. May they all rejoice in these merits to everyone who has helped us, supported us and assisted us in any way, shape or form. May they all rightfully rejoice in these merits. Let us also transfer these merits to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation. May they all may all those who lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe, rejoice in these merits. May us also transfer this message to those who've lost their lives in natural disasters, such as tsunamis and earthquakes, landslides, pandemics, and so on, reminding ourselves that in this infinitely long journey of samsara, they will all have been mothers and fathers to us, friends and acquaintances to us, May they all rejoice in this merits and with an abundance of compassion and loving kindness, let us transfer these merits to them by the power of these merits. If any of them have been born in the woeful plains, they redeem themselves to be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibban. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. And finally, let us all resolve that may, by the power and blessings of all the merits we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may you and I, and everyone who's helped for, make this program a success, become Rahatan Vahanse or a in Vahanse in this very life itself and in the era of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. The members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you.
1: Raga MOHA GINNEN NIDATNVÁ NIBVÁNA PARAM SUKAYAN SUKHITA TÁRA VETNVÁ NIBVÁNA PARAM SUKAYAN SUKHITA TÁRA VETNVÁ Mamada Siyalu Loka Siyalu Satnvayo Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnvam Nibbana Parama Sukhayan Sukhita Tara Vetnvam Nibbhāna pāram sukhayan Sukhita taravetanvā Rāga gini nivevā Dvēśa gini nivevā Moha gini nivevā Nivan sapalabhiva, Nivan sapalabhiva, Nivan Nivan sapalabhiva. Tunduvan gesu visi ananta maha
0: guna vilin, sila loka sila satyoma, nibbana parama sukhaen sukta tarvitva, sadhu sadhu sadhu.